This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. The Chapel Probation Podcast takes a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities, focusing initially on Azusa Pacific University, where I taught English for 15 years. I'm Scott Okamoto, and I'm writing a book about how I deconstructed from faith completely while at APU. This podcast, though, is my tribute to the students and other faculty who survived evangelical higher education. They faced ridiculous racism, sexism, anti-LGBTQ hatred, and all manner of bigotry. From the heartless evils of the prosperity gospel to the destructive pseudo-theology of purity culture, the stories will break your heart, but they will also inspire. These people faced bigotry and fought back. In a weird, kind of sick way, we went through some shit, but we formed identities and we formed communities through it all. I hope you will join us. I think the reason we were there is because there were a lot of benefits. And obviously, you know, through the, the positionality of, you know, your race and gender, that varied. But I think that when I've spoken to a lot of people, it's the community that keeps folks there. Mm-hmm. So even as you're seeing these things that are problematic and harmful and your red flags of ethics are going up and your Carl's crying again and you're like, I still think he's faking it. There's so much there that you're wanting to stay for and not jeopardize. I don't want to jeopardize this community. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And this is Full Mutuality. So today on the show, we have a friend of mine, Wes Curtis, um, who is joining us to kind of talk about his own story of deconstruction, um, I guess his faith history a little bit. And the reason that uh, we have asked Wes to join us is uh, because the way we met was through a little church that many people might know as um, the one that's currently in the headlines. I feel like they've (laughs) always been in the headlines, but Wes, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm so glad you're here. I'm pumped to have this conversation. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited to, you know, trauma bond with you. (laughs) Oh, we're going to we relive do, some good times. We do a lot of that. I mean, healing is a process, and we do a lot of it out loud with, with people who definitely have been through and understand the wildness that is this journey. Because, yeah. I don't know, I don't know if you ever talked to anyone who's who hasn't grown up in church about church yeah. stuff or, like, the healing yeah. process, and you start telling them stories, and you just watch their eyes get really, mm-hmm. really wide, and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I forget how not normal this is. <laughs> this, yeah. this all what? Because this is my life. Like, this yeah. is so normal. Right. They can, they can sort of conceptualize it like in the abstract, but, but there's something about someone who's gone through it that gets it. Mm. There's a lot less explaining you have to do and a lot of just mutuality there from the jump. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nate Nate and I definitely trauma bond over our (laughs) ex-evangelical stuff. Like when we met, it was like, oh, we love the same hockey team. That's amazing. That was how we actually met. Like it was through Uh our love of the same. I thought he was from Montreal actually. I was like, oh, he has a Habs jersey. He's he's from Montreal. And then I click and I'm like... New Jersey? How did you get a ha- like? Where did you become a Habs fan? How is the? How are you a Montreal Canadiens fan? Where did this come from? And then we started talking, and then he got into his church history, and I was like, "Oh wow! Like I totally get this yeah. completely. Yeah. This makes complete sense to me." And it was like yeah. so. You start to have so much in common when you've grown up, you know, 
in evangelicalism. So, mm-hmm. so Wes, give us a little bit of your background. Um, you w- were you born and raised in a Christian um, household, or did you you know convert at some point a little later in life? What's your what's your story? Yeah, I was. I was born. I was born into a Methodist household. So my parents were career Christians. Um, it actually goes back a couple of generations. My mom's oh, wow. dad was a Methodist pastor. She, my mom married um, my dad, who was studying to be a Methodist pastor, and then he became a pastor. So I grew up in a Christian household, and and um, it was what I knew growing up. Um, yeah, I attended small rural churches in North Carolina where, you know, the racism was rampant and there were a lot of very explicit boundaries and delineations on who could come and participate. And hmm. I watched my dad um, really uh, work against that. Um, I was telling Janice when we were talking about this, he had this like notorious like country club sermon where he, you know, looked at all the white people and said, this is not christian this is not a church this is a country club and here are the ways that we would be able to change that Hmm. i don't think he lasted but about six or nine months later you know after that they they got him out pretty quickly having a southern hospitality politeness could cover up for that kind of statement (laughs) no it does not contain the rage that 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 followed that sermon yeah so all of your hearts nope i know mind So I we, I grew up in this weird tension of my parents making money from the church mm. as a, as an institution and as a livelihood, but they were not very overtly legalistic, or you know they didn't put a lot of doctrinal pressure on my sister and I. So they they you know they did it as a job. It was their job, and then um, we believed what we what we wanted and. Um, in college, I sort of, I left Christianity. Well, I didn't leave Christianity. I just didn't, I left church. I didn't do church in college. And then when I moved to New York to pursue acting in 2009, I was like, oh, I think I want to get in, involved in, into a church and find a, a family and a home. And, um, oh, that was a motorcycle. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. And I think if I look back now, it was because I didn't know anyone. I moved to New York alone. I didn't really know people. And that was me seeking community, which mm. I think is probably the biggest draw for churches in general and the biggest need that's met there. Um, you were familiar with Hillsong, obviously, like I w- from Hillsong music was sort of known everywhere. I wouldn't say that I knew it in the way that people like revere it as sort of a genre defining company. I think I maybe recognized the songs, but I tried a couple of church. I was at a couple of churches before I experienced Hillsong, New York City. So Hillsong, okay. I think they landed in like 2010-ish. Mm-hmm. I think that's when they sort of, Carl was here and they were starting their like mm. monthly yeah. services. And I, I, how did I even find out about them? I don't even remember how I found out about them, but I went into a service in 2011 and I was already deeply involved in a different church, but this just experiencing, you know, the the experience, mm-hmm. the experience of Hillsong, New York City, was overwhelming. And what it, you is know, the Hillsong experience for people like me who didn't? And you and Nate have have experienced the Hillsong. You both can tell me what what it's for those listening who only know of the music genre of Hillsong. What's it like to go to Hillsong Church? What's that? What's that draw? What does that Hillsong experience look like? Wow, it's <laughs> <laughs> who wants to go um, first? Oh man. Uh, overwhelming, I think, is one way to describe it. 
you sort of just feel immersed. Very um, immersive. Yeah. I love that word. Very immersive. Yeah. Very I was, emotional. Mm, I was very involved at, in fact, I was, I was on um, the ministerial staff of another church um, that was, I think, just large enough to categorize as a mega church, but didn't really, like, it was, it was just over that threshold of, like, what, you know, yeah. sociologists might, might consider a mega church, quote unquote, even though it, it, it felt pretty small. Um, but they, you know, they had the whole like post grunge rock thing going, but they mm -hmm. were more of the, you know, doctrinal purity. They were very Calvinist. They loved to have those very oh, wow. strict, um, you know, sovereignty and wrath of God. That was the big thing. And, um, the emotional pull was just not there because they wanted you to like logic your way through all of this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I, that just, that didn't fit me. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, I didn't, I, I lasted about five years at that church. Um, and then after resigning, um, Hillsong kind of felt like a logical next step for me because I was reacting so heavily to that environment of, you know, that strict, you know, wrath of God kind of thing. Yes. And Hillsong loved to emphasize the love of God. And it was a very emotional, uh, heartstring kind of environment so that's what drew used, me it in. wasn't a way that you were used to doing worship before like it wasn't something you were super familiar with for me a little bit because the the church i was at previous um was a, a kind of emulating hillsong a little bit and i that's when i first the discovered one before the, the yeah the God. one before you, right yeah. right so okay. if if you've been listening God to the podcast God, church yeah. was just gonna call it that. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been listening to the podcast you probably know uh, a few of the which names which one is which right. <laughs> Who so was the, interviewed from which church? Yeah. Nate was just going through his trauma church <laughs> right, history right, on the podcast exactly. with everyone. <laughs> Whatever you need to do, Nate, you do it. <laughs> so the, the church I was at previous to Hillsong was uh, a church called Emergence. Um, and then prior to that was um, another church that was kind of like a, uh, a Hillsong wannabe to a degree. They, they were more of like a Baptist type of church, but they they loved the music, the Hillsong music and, and everything. And they, they pulled off you know, for a, for a local, like smaller mega church, they definitely pulled off the Hillsong vibe as well as you can, right. For a, for a smaller church, but yeah. they, um, but that's when I first discovered, um, Hillsong United concerts. We went to a bunch of concerts and then, uh, somebody who had worked for Hillsong and, um, had been on tour with their band ended up working on staff at that church. So that was my exposure to Hillsong. It was pretty early on, it was before Hillsong landed in New York. Um, I discovered them, I think, around 2007, 2008, even though I knew about some of their songs, like Shout to the mm -hmm. Lord and whatnot from the mm -hmm. 90s. Um, 2007, 2008 was when I really discovered like Hillsong as this music, genre-defining uh, organization. But yeah, so to answer your question, Gail, um, Hillsong, yeah, definitely. I would go with overwhelming and immersive as, as my descriptor for that. Yeah. Cause you have this, I mean, the music and the production value is the main priority, you know, mm -hmm. they, they want it to be immersive. So you, you come in and as soon as you walk in the building, you're hit with sound, just yeah. a wall of sound. Um, there's a, there's a social atmosphere of like openness. Everybody has these bright eyes and these smiles. Everyone is like really young, mostly very, very attractive. Mm -hmm. um, the the speaking is very like motivational, like very Tony Robbins. So you've got all of this recipe yeah. of like 
just attraction, music, sound, vibes, people, motivation, love, like you were saying, Nate. And so it all makes this concoction of just overwhelm intense emotion, you know, and, and you, you respond, your body is just like, Oh my God, everybody. I remember the first time I went in to this service, I was in the balcony of Irving Plaza and they were singing and everybody had their hands raised. And I was like, well, I'm from, I'm from the Methodist church. You know, I'm like, Mm. what, what is this hand raising thing? But because everybody was doing it, it's like sort of the sheep theory. Mm. It's like, because everyone's doing it, it was very normalized. And so I was like, fuck it, I'll try it. And, yeah. you know, felt great. It was, it's a very like vulnerable position to put yourself in mm. while you're sharing this intimate moment with others. So there's so many, I would love for somebody to do a psychological study on, on that experience. What yeah. is happening psychologically right. in that moment? Cause it's fascinating. Yeah. It really is. Right. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I grew up Pentecostal and, and hands raised was a thing. And then I was in churches that didn't do that, that was, you know, that weren't charismatic. And for sure, that, like, I think maybe I was on an opposite trajectory to you, Nate, where I started with something so charismatic and I noticed the ma- emotional manipulation mm-hmm. or I sort mm-hmm. of felt that, like, mm-hmm. you know, you're playing the same song for the 10th time and then everyone's breaking <laughs> yeah. down in tears, whereas in the beginning they weren't and it's like they're softening you up through the... Con- so I think yeah. I felt safer mm-hmm. when I got into a church that didn't didn't do that where it was like, That's okay, interesting. you know, but yeah. I, I do want like wonder how much, you know, your raised hands contributes, how, like, how, how does it create an emotional vibe for you? All the different yeah. aspects of it, not just the music, but even the way they, they tell you to express your body language, the way yeah. they show you to express your body right. language. They model you know? it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. way they model it all around you. So if you're like standing there stiff, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're going to look kind of weird in that environment. Like what's wrong with you? I, mm-hmm. At least I don't know if that's maybe Hillsong's so big, it doesn't feel like that. But I remember my old church, like if, if, if 90% of the people are doing that, then the other yeah. 10 look like something spiritually yeah. wrong with them. Yeah. Like maybe right. you're, Maybe you're you're closed off to God and you're not uh-huh. letting his presence in your life. You know, exactly. like that's, yep. that's sort of the, the, you almost, you look like that compared to everyone around well, you. Well, I, yeah. I definitely had those thoughts. Um, the first team that I served on at, at Hillsong, um, I was like walking around the auditorium counting how many hands were raised during the, you know, the <laughs> altar call. <Yeah>. And, <laughs> uh-huh. but I, I remember just standing there and watching um, people who, you know, some people who just weren't raising their hands during the worship music. And I'm like, oh, they're not feeling it. They, the Holy yeah. Spirit's not moving with them. Something's <laughs> going on in their life. Yep. Got some, they're closed some off to God. Yep, keeping some secrets. Uh-huh. The Spirit can't penetrate <laughs> through that wall. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So your, your involvement then in Hillsong, because um, I feel like um, when around the time I met you, you were pretty involved. You were doing stuff, right? Yeah. So how how what was yeah. that track like? You know, from from standing in the uh, in the the balcony of Irving Plaza to then joining teams. It was a quick track, you know. Yeah. I think I was listening to you and Janice talk um, this week, and I recognized the the difference that I had in being a you know cis heterosexual white male of just, I just, fit, I fit in. So mm. I walked in and I could, I could speak the language. I could, you know, I could, I, I had all the values and the culture down. And, um, so I, I started leading a connect group pretty early on. I mean, I, I met, you know, I met the leaders and, and mingled and, oh, I want to do more. I was, I was, I was ready to go all in. Mm. Um, and you know, when people are willing to give a lot of their time and they 
fit the bill. They give a lot of responsibility. Yeah. So yeah, I started leading connect group. I, I got really involved with the creative team because I, I was an actor. So I was kind of, you know, reaching, uh, connecting with actors. Um, I was a singer, so I was doing like frontline vocals and I, yeah, I mean, it just, it felt very seamless. It, it was just sort of like you meet this person. Hey, Wes is great. Oh, cool. Do you want to do more stuff? Yeah, I'd love to. Mm. I started, um, I started leading the crew team first, I think. Crew was the teardown setup. So I was one of the crazy people that was mm. willing to get there at, you know, 545 in the morning or drive a you truck were, at you were really 1 a.m. once they were done. Best. I was. Yeah. I was so on fire for... <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> there's the trauma. I was yep, just wondering, when is it going to start? Yeah. When's the anxiety yeah. going to start kicking in? <laughs> Don't worry. So, we're yeah, with so you. I think we're that was it. the... What's that? So we're in it with you. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this is a safe space. (laughs) Yep. Um, I think the crew. I think I really like paid my dues and the crew team, and I think that's why they were they they started giving me a lot of responsibility because they saw me stacking chairs week after week after week after week. Um, And yeah, then I think Nate, I met you after I had started to do like a lot more creative Mm -hmm. producing and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, So I did. I did. Oh, I was there for seven years. Yeah. So over seven years, I did. I, I started with sort of the crew stuff, and then because I was an actor, I wanted to do more creative things. So mm-hmm. I kind of shifted into more of creative producing. So when conferences would come into town, I was really involved with that. Um, really involved with like special events, special moments. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I led a connect group like almost the whole time I was there. Mm. So yeah. you mentioned uh, you mentioned listening to Janice talk and the, and and the, our conversation and realizing mm-hmm. oh yeah you kind of was a different trajectory for you because as a cis white man like it's yeah. a, it is a different trajectory. Mm-hmm. How I mean I guess my question is how does how do how does it start to hit you? Like how what was it taking for you to sort of go? I'm not sure. I'm really like something's off or like the stuff that would take someone who's not cis white maybe quicker to see what did it take for you let's say for the curtain to be pulled back in terms of areas yeah. of inequality or things that are right or am i jumping too far ahead in this conversation <laughs> too fast i don't think so no i think that's i think i think that's a great question because that is it, you know it's sort of like when did you see start seeing those things and unfortunately you know ashamedly way too late um i i think i first noticed it with the LGBTQ community, you know, because I had these really, really close friends of mine were on platform, you know, playing instruments or Josh Canfield is a good friend of mine. So I was, I was very personally involved with the, the boundaries and the exclusionary conversations that were happening very explicitly where leadership would say to my gay friend, you can't have that flag symbol on your laptop if you're going to be playing keys on stage because that's promoting, you know, a gay culture, which we, which we can't do. My friend was like, Oh, of course, of course I'll take it down. I think that's those kinds of conversations. I was like, this this is kind of fucked up. Like, Mm. I don't wait. What, what, why is this such a, a big deal? And then the Josh, I forget what year the, the Josh stuff went down. I think it Um, might've been 2015, 2014 or something like that. Somewhere around that. It was Right as I first started attending, I think was was when the Josh stuff 
This is down. what we referred to a Janice as a game meeting, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the jo- yeah. the Josh stuff, the Josh tension led to the gay meeting because okay. it was like, and Josh was a great friend of mine. You have to go back to that mine. episode if you guys want to know mm, what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah. Listen to the Janice episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I was at the gay, I was at the gay meeting. Josh you invited. invited you. Oh. Yeah, I was invited. He was like, because I had been talking to him about this and I was like, dude, this is messed up. Like, what can we do? You mm-hmm. know, how can, how can we, uh, rectify this is this is not okay and he Wes, was like Carl's- you were realizing this as a straight man while you were in church because I, I had to be out of church yeah. before i started to recognize this as a problem when you grew up methodist it wasn't trained into you homosexuality is a sin it wasn't part it was of it was it was so i think it was my relationship with these friends that make it feel fun. that helped me see a different perspective mm. and you know i i think i'd started deconstructing other things there before that time so like 2014 i i started I started looking at oh, the Bible and inerrancy and heaven and hell. And so I'd started kind of pulling pieces out of the Jenga tower already. Mm. And then when, yeah, when, when my friends were having these experiences, my, my moral and my morals and my ethics started to butt up against the theology in ways that it hadn't before. Before there was just sort of the push it away, avoid it, don't have the conversation, give the trite catchphrase like we were yeah. saying before. You know, oh, love this. You know, love the sinner, hate the sin. You know, there mm. were there were ways that as a straight man I could absolve myself of having to cognitively deal with that dissonance. But now, these people that I you know cared about so much, I was seeing the toll it was taking. I, I saw the anxiety that was happening when people were coming in and not wanting others to know that they were out because they didn't want to lose their position on the platform. Right. They wanted to continue to sing, and. Um, so yeah, I think, but I think Gail, to answer your question, I had already started to sort of deconstruct my faith in general and Christianity, mm-hmm. and so I I was more willing to be like, I don't, I don't have to agree with this because you don't have to agree with everything. Yeah, um, yes. But I went to the gay meeting, and it was, um, God, I wish I could go back in time. You know, like <laughs> I think like what with all this different. If you could go back in time, what would I just what would why would you want to go back in? Because I would have I would have called Carl's bullshit out. Mm. You know, I I would have I would have seen through the the manipulation. Carl and Joel were there. You know, kind of just just blanketing us with just manipulative statements and like, this is why we need to keep this at the, at the family dinner table and not talk about this outside of this space, you know, because this is something that we want to work through together and just give us time, give us more time to sort through how we want to do this. And, and, and I think I asked Joel, I said, Joel, why can't we talk about like what we're saying right now? This is valuable. You know, Mm. we're sharing, space together and we're sitting down why can't we share this publicly why can't this be a public discourse he was like you know uh the media just they take sound bites and they just twist it so uh, we want we got to keep we got to keep it safe and that's a great impression. i bought it it's a great impression by the way thank you thank you <laughs> and Nate, Nate I, does yeah. brian houston <laughs> i heard it i heard brian I heard you heard his brian houston <laughs> yeah yeah a lot of respect oh thank you thank you impression thank you <laughs> yeah yeah so i think that was one of the big that was one of the big uh big pieces yeah. where i st- and i started to push against it so I, I remember having a meeting with kane and i said look man so after the gay meeting you know in the gay meeting carl's like okay we're gonna do this again i want to keep doing this i want this to be part of the process of how we figure out basically how to tow the party line how mm, do we yeah how do we not lose the conservative money 
in our church, but also still you know, not shame the LGBTQ right. community that's right. here. And you, the, I think the truth is you can't. You can't. Um, but <laughs> but they tried and they did for a long time. But I, I met with Kane. I remember because they weren't meeting. Carl said we're going to meet every week, and and my friend who was a part of that, I think they did meet like two months later, and then they wanted to keep meeting. And Carl said, I don't want you guys to meet without me. But we, but you're not meeting with us. He's never around. Yeah, you're not, you're not prioritizing this. So I went to Kane and I was like, look, this, this isn't okay. This is not okay. This, this, these, these folks need to meet together. They're experiencing really difficult things in this community that they need to be able to share with each other. And, um, and then I think I think they did end up having like some sort of a connect group. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know how long it lasted, but I was starting to push back against the leaders and say like this this is not okay. And you know I had their ear, and so I think there was a little bit of pull that I was able to have. Um, hmm. But yeah, that's kind of when it started. Yeah, I started kind of yeah raising my voice. Not a, not enough and way too late, but I did a little bit. And it would still be so. So what year did you end up um, finally walking out the doors? Never 2018. 2018. Okay. Yeah. So, seven years. Seven years. So, a, so it would still be a couple years. And, you know, it's interesting hearing you say that because all of that takes place two, three years before you ultimately walked out. Mm-hmm. And I remember during my exodus, the, the times where I noticed things were really off was still another two years before <laughs> I actually was like, I'm done. Yeah. Um, and and it's hard because I look back on that and I think, why the fuck did I not just walk away when I when I mm. felt it was wrong, when I initially got that sense of this is this is all bullshit and it's hurting yeah. people, um, and we can all see a whole lot more in hindsight. Like yeah. there's so much that I mean, I think you were saying it maybe with Janice or maybe it was with me individually that like. Your perspective when you left Hillsong versus even now watching the documentary, Nate, yeah. you know, has totally changed even the benefits of the doubts that you gave back then, or even a year out of Hillsong, the benefit mm-hmm. of a doubt you would have given to a Carl Lentz versus... Yeah, and even, I mean, even where, Janice mentioned it too, right? She said, right. Um, you know, when the news about Carl dropped, she was like, well, you know, 50% victim, 50% perpetrator, mm-hmm. right? But now, mm-hmm. now, looking back at everything... And understanding what all of those dynamics are. Understanding the manipulation yeah. that, that was taking place. I mean, that's hard to see when you're in the moment when you're being manipulated. Like mm-hmm. you said, Wes, wanting to go back in time. Because you can see things much more clear now in yeah. terms of what was just BS talking to, to shut people up. I don't know. I like to highlight this stuff and stick a, a pin in it for people and to pause and to freeze frame just so people realize. Because I think we all have those feelings of... How did I not see how, like, how, how come when I started to see, it took me so long to even get out? Like, I mean, Mm. there was obvious things that were starting to get my attention that I brushed aside, but it is such a big process to start to like, for your belief starts to collapse in on themselves. It's a big deal. It's, there's a lot intertwined. Like you said, jingle blocks. I like the idea of a tapestry woven and you're pulling out a thread. It's, it doesn't all just, you know, undo instantly. Sometimes it's like an unraveling and it takes some time to, to notice. And this piece brings clarity to that. And that happens way later, maybe even after you're out of it. So I I'm, I guess I, I don't know. I, I hope that when people are listening and they re- relate to feeling mm-hmm. like um, ashamed, I know that when we were watching the documentary at the end, uh, Noemi 
Noemi was giving her story and she just sat there and she paused right at, it was near the end of the documentary and she's sitting in the pew and she just kind of, I think she puts her head in her hands and, and just pauses and at the question they asked her, just kind of stumped her on, on, you know, about staying and how it feels now or something like that. And I know Nate started, you started crying, babe. And you were like, you were overwhelmed with that, like recognizing and under identifying with her feelings and you feeling that same way. And I think we've been like, We've all had those moments of how did I, how did I get duped? How, yeah. how does it feel now looking back at all of this and what I was a part of along the way? Mm. And I think it's important for people to know you're, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Your process of, of it taking a while is very common. It's, it's quite a universal experience for deconstruction and, you know, you're not dumb. You're not, um, any of those feelings you're feeling about yourself there's a lot that there's the whole system was constructed in a way to keep you there as long as possible. Yeah. So when you started to see it, yes, of course it's taken you a while and a lot of healing and a lot of outer perspective to, to recognize those things. I mean, especially yeah. if you're in a demographic that gains a lot from, Keeping from this world, on. right? Like, mm. um, as much as they like to present this front of being a, an egalitarian church with women pastors, they are very male dominated. And, for for you and me, Wes, as men, and also as non-black men, we stood to benefit quite a lot um, from that from that system. You know, we could talk that kind of language very easily. I mean, I don't think either of us would have to code switch at all. No. Um, and, you know, as heterosexual men, we also stand, we don't have to worry about being ostracized by that system. I don't have to hide any part of my identity. I don't have to shift any part of my identity. I didn't have to, yeah, I didn't have to code switch. I didn't have to change myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I could just be fully, fully me. And, and it was um, promoted. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that, Gail. I think that that is really important to speak to is the shame that can sometimes come from people who look back and think, why didn't I? I've literally had people message me that as I've posted on Facebook or had conversations, people will just be like, I, you know, it's like they, they wake up from this stupor or something and they're just like, wait, what, how, how did I, how did I not do more? And, um, talking about benefits, Nate, I think that, I think the reason we were there is because there were a lot of benefits and obviously, you know, through the, the positionality of, you know, your race and gender, that varied. But I think that when I've spoken to a lot of people, it's the community that keeps folks there. Mm -hmm. So even as you're seeing these things that are problematic and harmful and your red flags of ethics are going up and you're, Carl's crying again and you're like, mm -hmm. I, I still think he's faking it. There's so much there that you're wanting to stay for and not jeopardize. I don't yeah. want to jeopardize this community. When I come in, I get 12 hugs before I get through the whole building. Right. As I'm learning more about psychology, I'm seeing that it's a survival. It's This is like evolutionary uh, behavior where like our social network is our survival. Our, mm. this, this for me, you know, church was a part of my identity. It was a part of my survival. So to question that, A, takes a lot of self-reflection, deconstruction is such a messy, uh, uh, shameful process, I think, sometimes for people because you are seeing kind of the ugly sides of what you're involved in. Yeah. But evolutionarily, like, why would you, why would you leave your herd? Mm. That's not safe. 
So there's a lot working against the process of deconstructing or disaffiliating or deconverting. Mm-hmm. Um, psychologically, there's a lot against that. There's a lot of unconscious draw that keeps you from saying, I don't know if I agree with this. It keeps you from saying, I think I should challenge this because I want to I want to stay reaping the fruits of this worship, reaping the fruits of connect group and being able to call my friends and talk about things. And, you know, if if I keep pulling pieces out of the Jenga tower, what if it falls? Mm what could you lose? Like, that's a, that's a huge question. And I think for depending, like, I don't know, I had those, I have these conversations so often with different people about walking away and what that means and people who can walk away and not, and kind of have it easy in the sense of like, they didn't lose that much and oh, well, I'm moving on. I don't want to think about it or talk about it. And I'm like, what about the people who lose their family when they start deconstructing? What about the, like the people who lose their mom and dad Mm -hmm. and siblings Mm -hmm. and like, you know, like coming to the, to those conclusions boots them out of their, their, like if you have people that will embrace you when you deconstruct, you are fortunate. Mm -hmm. You are, um, you're very privileged in that sense to be able to keep that all intact, to keep your, your foundation intact. But for some people it's losing everyone important to them to, Mm -hmm. to start to ask those questions. And, they're left with nothing under. And I think I don't, from my perspective anyway, it's it's pretty much impossible to start that process if you have nothing firm under your feet other than that. Like if that's what's holding, mm-hmm. you know, if mm-hmm. your belief in God, yeah. let's say, is what's keeping you alive and you're like, you know, without Jesus, I I don't know, you know, how I could live day to day. If that's where you're, you are at, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to knock that. Like I don't want to be the one to pull out your... Mm -hmm. (laughs) what's holding you up (laughs) like i think there's some questions you can't start to ask yourself at all if you're not in a secure place if you're in an unsafe place if you're in an unstable place where this is the only thing helping you tread through from from day to day and i find it a bit i know i'm going on a side tangent but i find it a bit worrisome that church sometimes even tries to present that to you as a positive you know if you're more dependent on god if he is all you have he's all you need and like the more he's your everything and the more he is the source of all of your hope and all of your everything then the more spiritual you <laughs> you are considered right. so letting right. go of all the other stuff that might make you feel secure or might give you a sense of uh, foundation is considered an act of faith sometimes it's considered an act of trust in god it's considered a giving yourself fully over to god and yet those are the very things that will keep you from asking those kind of questions, right? Because then the more you give up all those other pieces, the more that's there's now everything's in this one basket. So right. how do you start to go through that? <laughs> hey, everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a quick break from the conversation to let you know that we have a fantastic new way for you to support the podcast. If you like what you hear from our show and want to partner with us, head over to patreon.com slash full mutuality to donate. As a partner, you'll get exclusive content, access to occasional live recording events, and more for as little as $5 a month. Thank you already for your support of what we're creating. And now, back to the conversation. You know, some people have no choice but to pull at threads because their identity is in there. Right. And they are faced with, I I either um, accept myself for who I am or... Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, no, and lose everything. Right. Um, right. So yeah. Sort of backed into, backed into the deconstruction. Right. Right. Because it's like, if I stay, if I stay here with the wolves, like, you know, I, I, I smell like meat, you know, mm. I'm, I'm queer or, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't be fully me. I have to, I have to, I have to put this like fake 
animal skin on to try to to try to not get eaten and so there's like yeah there is like the survival component to being backed into deconstruction for for some and and there is a privilege of being able to choose oh i think i might hmm i think i might think twice about this mm-hmm. I, I think i might start to doubt these things yeah yeah that's a good point was there any blow west that was like I don't know, sucker punch to the gut because you talked about deconstructing little by little, piece by piece, kind of going through different things that weren't weren't sitting well with you. You know, okay, inerrancy or hell, or then the gay one was huge because yeah. you have the people close to you. Was there something that knocked everything down and you're like, yeah, I'm done with church? <laughs> was there anything like that yeah. for you? Yeah, yeah, the 45th president of the United Ooh. States. <laughs> yeah, Ooh, big yeah, topic. He, thank you, thank mm. you for that, DJT. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that was that was the that was the tip that was the Jenga tower fell. Mm. I was seeing the seeing the response of evangelicalism to Trump's running for presidency and then getting elected. I was like, "What the fuck? Mm. This is uh, this is my co- <laughs> yeah." I, it, I, it's interesting to hear Americans say that. I'm Canadian, right? So, like yeah. the evangelical community in Canada. If I'm gonna like you know, give it a political character. Yeah. They are not Donald Trump supporters. Like as a whole, Canadian evangelicals. Everything else about Canadian evangelicalism mirrors what, you know, when Nate and I chat, we have a lot. Like it's similar, similar, similar. You get to Donald Trump and it's like, no, but Canadians don't see it like that. So I on huh. the outside was floored when I was like 81% of white evangelicals yeah. voted for Donald Trump. How'd that happen? So it's interesting right. to hear that it was a shock to me, but it was a shock to you as well. Mm-hmm. As an American, as a white evangelical, you were surprised to know that this was your community as well. And you grew up in the South. So like, right. what, why was this? <laughs> a sh- I'm con- like, I'm just, I'm fascinated, right? Like for me, I'm like, well, I guess I wasn't immersed in that American white evangelical culture. It was, the Canadians didn't, you know, I don't know, didn't see it that, saw him very differently, I guess. Yeah. Before. I don't know. Maybe my own, maybe my own naivete. Like I, I thought that, I thought that the ideal, the ideals of social justice and, inclusion and you know valuing the one jesus going and rescuing the one and leaving the 99 you know the christianity has so many different flavors like the flavor of christianity that i was surrounding myself by whether it was my friends or carl would say black lives matter from the pulpit though you know mm-hmm. he wouldn't back it up with with right. action right. and wouldn't give seats at the table for you know p- people of color that that deserved it but i think that the the values that I thought evangelicals possessed as a whole would have unquestionably gone against everything Trump stood for. And so when I saw just this massive surge of support um, for this guy who was so clearly just, you know, white supremacy and an orange toupee, like I, I was just... I was shocked. I was like, wait, these are the people like, you know, Bethel leaders. I listen to messages from these people and they're telling their congregations to vote for him. So this was, this was a huge reckoning for me. And yeah. um, were these conversations that like Bethel was having was Hillsong as blatant in those kind of things? Or like, were did you hear, have these conversations? Were you in your circle at Hillsong hearing people be pro Trump? Were you seeing that in your community? No, I wasn't seeing a lot of explicit pro- pro-Trump um, language or action. So maybe that's um, why it was more of a surprise. Yeah, maybe that's why it was a surprise. I think maybe that I was in a little bit of a bubble. 
Because um, I noticed and, in certain places in the U.S., people are like hush hush about their opinions on this. Like they don't they don't want to overtly tell you, yes, I support Trump. They kind of weigh it out to figure out where you are before they say anything about it. Well, it's I like, think that yeah. was one of the big things about America. I think that outside of Christianity, that was the case. Like all the polls were showing mm-hmm. Hillary winning because I think that was the general. That was a big swath of the population, sort of right. hush hush, like kind of over trump but we know it's like controversial so don't tell anybody but yeah and then and then they did and then he won yeah so yeah i think i was i was in a bubble and maybe the hush hush people weren't speaking up and i didn't mm-hmm. know that but the people that were speaking up you know the the evangelical i think i think maybe what it was was hillsong wasn't taking a stance yeah and i think that was really really off to me you know they would say black lives matter that was kind of the extent of it mm-hmm. i mean carl marched um in some of the social justice marches, but um, that was it. And I was like, this, I was just, I was completely shocked. I was like, this is, this can't be, this isn't me. This is not, I'm not, I'm not like this anymore. Right, you know? right. yeah. I think what what's interesting too, um, like you mentioned the the bubble, right? Being in, in, in a bit of a bubble and that Hillsong didn't really take a stand. And I think part of the reason that, that they didn't take a stand is there. Um, they like to set up in urban environments. Um, you know, mm-hmm. like their first, the first location in the U S was New York city. Um, and, right. and, you know, they set up in London and Paris and, um, and so they're, they're in these urban centers yeah. that would be by and large anti-Trump, anti-white, yep. uh, white supremacy, anti-nationalism. Um, and so it would have been, uh, detrimental to their their brand and their population, the the numbers of their congregation. It it would have that would have caused a mass exodus, I'm sure, because it's such a um, a, a city focused church um, that if they right. had made any kind of statement, but of course, you know, they have their shareholders, <laughs> so um, they yeah, can't they right. can't make they can't make anti Trump statements because. You know, they still have to appease the money bags, but um, mm-hmm. in order to keep people coming through the doors in those big cities, they have to keep quiet about um, uh, about that stuff. Whereas I think a place like Bethel, you know, they're they're sort of out in in the the right what rural California, yeah, yeah. northern California, yeah, yeah. They can be um, a little bit more. Uh, vocal about that. I, I, I was, um, and and I was also thinking there, there's, a, there's an element of privilege, um, as well to being, because I, I mean, how many, how many of my black friends said I didn't surprise me. I'm not shocked. Sure. Like we knew this is what this country right. was all about. Yeah. Right. Um, and right. you know, I, as, as the numbers were coming in, um, I started doing a little bit of that, you know, reflecting on. Oh my God, it's real. This this is what what our country's all about, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it's it was a it was definitely a big wake up call. So yeah, I think um certainly for me that was one of the the catalyzing moments where I'm like, I'm not I'm not safe in a church where, you know, I can I can look at the person that is standing next to me and wonder, um, did they vote for that guy? Right. Is this, Right. You know, God. is this person safe? Terrifying. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I like, 
And the fact that I'm I'm standing in this church and this is happening in the world. This is happening in the US. And from the platform, from the pulpit, no one is Business talking as about usual. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're acting yeah. like this is just you know, it's just another election. Um Yeah. So my question, I guess when you had mentioned earlier about um how sitting in those meetings the kind of silence, like the, sorry, even afterwards that we're supposed to meet up again, but then it's not happening and sort of the quietness about it, the, you know, we care about you, but it's sort of in, in silence, there's a big silence about it. It's not, we love you and we embrace you. It's, um, take that sticker off your thing. So we, cause we're not ready for this kind of conversation and let's just pray and hope. Did it feel a bit like, do you think you took those sort of pieces from how that topic was handled and started to see, wait a second, the fact that my church isn't speaking out against, they're quiet on this, that I need to be aware that this is problematic, that they're not taking a stand. Like that need for like some solid affirmation, some solid straight up, this is where we are on this. And this is how we feel, like that quietness, did it feel suspicious to you? Yeah. I mean, I started to, I started to see, I'd always seen it, but it's, it started to, I think again, because my deconstruct and my de like you were saying, Gail, there was enough that I was seeing, oh, I don't have to stay on this foundation. I have enough footing out here too, that I can question these things. So I started to see the same spirit of silencing these conversations and not, not talking about not confronting, not having the conversations with these communities. I started seeing that in other areas too. Um, um, I had friends, I had friends that were leaving cause seven years, the turnover rate, mm. the window of turnover was, I don't know, was more like two years, three years, four years. So in seven years, I saw the revolving door, people coming in, people going out. That is, and that I had, is a thing in churches to mm, pay attention yeah. to. That yeah. Revolving door. Most people end up seeing that happen. And yeah, that's mm-hmm. a sign. And yeah. so that another, that was another indicator. That was another flag of like, what's going on here. And and the people that were leaving were some of the most devoted, like sold out, mm-hmm. like gave so much time and energy. I remember I had some friends that were literally like finance professionals and they had given so much money, you know, they had their, they had their like rich people meetings where they would petition for more money from oh, like, yeah. the people foundation. that were richer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The foundation. And so they were like members of that and they, you know, they gave a lot of money and they had asked, proposed to Carl or like the finance team, like, uh, we'd love to lend our abilities and our skills to help you all with budgeting and finances and all that. Cause we know New York is crazy and the real estate and, and they shut them out. They, mm. they said, no, we don't want you to see, you know, we don't need you to see the ins and outs. And, and, and so they were very, um, they were very confused by that. I think they were a little offended and they tried to have conversations with Carl and Kane and, and basically they were met with the silence. So mm. that sort of stonewalling and that sort of placating and appeasing of like, yeah, yeah, let's, we should grab coffee. Let's get with my assistant, talk to, talk to my assistant. We'll get something on the books, radio silence. So people were leaving like that, and I remember we had a meeting, Kane and Tolu called this sort of OG meeting. So there were, uh, Tim wasn't there, there were, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anyone there, Nate, that that you might have known. Um, but it, there was about 12 or 14 people that were like 2011, like me, started okay. way back, and they wanted to just say, 
they wanted to create a space where we could be honest yeah. about what we think needed to change. And I was like, hell yeah, this is great. And this was what they did, right? They did just enough yeah. so that you thought they were listening and they were caring and things might change. Oh, and so Janet again, that heard it too. And I was tricking the system and I was like, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. They did it just, they were so good at it, you know? Um, so we had this meeting and um, they were like, yeah, you know, you've been here for seven years. You all have, have really given so much of yourselves. We, we trust you and we respect your perspective. Let us know. What are you seeing? What's feedback? And at that point I was very much like, I, I'm just going to shoot from the hip. You know, I, like I was kind of one foot you in, on one your foot way out. out. Yeah. You're kind of like, I was eh, one f- they're yeah. going to boot me for speaking my mind. I was already going <laughs> to probably head that Yeah. Way. I was like, I'm headed that way. I might as well like throw some, some, you know, do the little exit interview on my way. Mm. Um, but I did, I mentioned like, look, you, you all are always comparing the church to how it's like a marriage and how you don't leave your spouse. And yet, where, where is the, where's, it's a double standard because where is you treating people that are leaving the church like a marriage and you're, you know, asking them why they're going because you're not doing that. And um, uh, there were other things that were said that I, I would kind of raise my hand and say, I just want to kind of challenge that. And Tolu would, would, would laugh and be like, every time she'd say something, she'd be like, Wes, did did you want to challenge anything? Um, And after that meeting, I heard from other people that were there, people that were on staff. They told me that Kane said a couple of days afterward, like, this was valuable. We wanted to do it again, but we want to have um, people there that, that aren't so negative. So we want to make sure wow. that the negative people don't <laughs> come we back. We want the, the helpful feedback as long as it agrees yeah. with where we are and not anything that – and. That's interesting too. I mean, the sinister side of me, the sinister side of me, when you said they wanted to have a meeting with people with their ear to the ground who've been there for the long term, I was just suspicious that they were like trying to mine for information of, okay, who's upset about what and who are the people we need to look out for in this church for the device? Well, I'm sure they're, I'm sure they were taking some of that information and forming more, um, their, their spin, you know? Uh, they yeah. were trying to get ahead of ahead of things, and yeah. and the way they would do that is to create these little meetings where they could hear what people are worried about and what people are disgruntled about, and then somehow find a way to address them. And sure, we might lose these people that gave us this information, but there are probably a few people who might be a little concerned in these directions. So we'll take that information, we'll spin it, and then feed it to the congregation so that those... Um, uh, the, those among this church who are a little bit concerned, but not as concerned as the ones who have just left, um, right. they'll be satiated, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, like, I'm probably not going to be able to keep those those angry ones, quote unquote, anyway. So <laughs> right. might as well, you know, take their spin out of it and be able to turn my narrative easier in these meetings where people express concerns. But that's, I mean, the gaslighting with the angry, I don't know. That's mm. That's one of the first words I was ever called. Um, when I started to be vocal, I, I supported my daughter, um, coming out as, as, uh, as gay as bi. Um, but at the time she was, she thought she was gay and it's a, it's a spectrum. She's figuring out where she is on things. She's dating a guy now. I'm sure it's made many people happy who are praying for her, but she's still alive. <laughs> she's still, she yeah. still is who she is unabashedly, you know, yeah. is not trying to hide that from anyone is not doing it for anyone to, to accept her, which I'm very proud of her about that. She's just going with what she wants. Um, but you know, I said, you know, if anyone wants to, cause 
people were making comments when she came out publicly and they were like, we love you anyway. And I was like, if you want to oh, love God. my daughter anyway, you can go fuck off with that. Like yeah. I literally, I swear, Not I swore on my anyway. Facebook. I swore on my Facebook and, and I got messages about how I've changed as a person. I used to be a spiritual person, but I'm an angry person now. Yeah. I'm an angry person. That was the first time Good. I was really gaslit. Yeah. I'm glad you were angry. There was a to be lot angry to be about. angry about. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think, yeah, totally was angry. Listen, but like, it's yeah. interesting how that is a reason, like in your case too, right? People use, you too had valid reasons to be angry, Wes. You had seen a lot in the time you were there. You weren't angry for nothing. This probably right. was a valid critique of where you were at. But it's interesting when that word angry is used to be like, you're an untrustworthy person. You don't contribute something good through your anger. This is not uh, a positive thing that can, you know, lead in a good direct, like, you know, as if Jesus didn't flip over tables and uh, and had have his anger moments at what he was seeing as corruption and messed up stuff going on in front of him. Like, I just, I, I, it, it, it reaches in me personally. I was sharing my own story just because when I hear that yeah. you were told you were angry, you were angry as a reason to take you out. It's just frustrating. I feel yeah. like that's a gaslighting technique to to try and shut someone down and say your opinions aren't valid. Something's mm -hmm. wrong with you. Right, and it perpetuates the yes men on yeah. the inside. So so all we want on the inside are yes men. If you have a dissenting opinion, you get demoted, you get excluded. So it 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 promotes a a lack of critical thinking, it promotes a lack of um, autonomy. So if you want to fit in, you have to agree. Mm -hmm. That's what it promotes. That's what the behavior promotes. And they would, they would say the opposite. Like you're saying, Nate, they would spin it. And they, so they would say all the, the opposite things of what they did. And that, again, that was tricking the system. So yeah. it's like, I'm seeing this thing, but they're saying the opposite. They keep so many people yeah. at arm's length, you know? They're, yeah. Yeah. So Hardly anybody ever gets close enough to right. see the bullshit, right? And the people who start to see the bullshit, who then, and and I almost feel like they they push the walls out further. So when when somebody smells the the bullshit over here, <laughs> um, they're like, ah, uh, now let's push the wall out further, and then that person ends up leaving. But then the next person who might be in that area or you know who might see that that sort of crack in the wall that there's the wall is further out so they nobody can't get close yeah, enough to nobody's going to get close enough anymore yeah, and they've that's a great analogy they keep they they just kept on doing that um yeah yeah, yeah. so Wes, i yeah. have a question for you um yes. where where are you now as far as your your spirituality your your faith and and how has um your experience uh, in and coming out of Hillsong kind of informed uh, your your faith or spiritual journey um, on, on this side of, of your Hillsong experience? Um, it's a great question. That's I... a good buying time answer. Was. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. Yeah, th but this is, this is what I've spent a lot of time deconstructing as nice, neat little... Um, boxes mm -hmm. of, of, of answers. So yeah. mm -hmm. even just hearing that question, I feel the tension in me of like, yes, I need to be the good Christian. I need to give Nate a really good, like, 
mm-hmm. clean, neat way of responding Listen, so he knows exactly what it is. people who are listening to this podcast, <laughs> who, if they hear that answer, they know, do they trust you and believe anything you have to say or can they just chuck everything you just said out the window because oh your opinion yeah. doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> right? no, I, and right. I say this because we've gotten those questions to our inbox yeah. from our podcast. Yeah. Been like, What's your label? Are yeah. you guys still Christians? Because, you know, yeah. that's the way that we're going to figure out, can we right. trust anything you have to say? Which is so right. funny because we talk about church abuse and I'm like, so if we said we are, then we can do whatever the heck we want, right? Like, that <laughs> <Yeah>. works? <laughs> how, how, does, how do we trick the system? No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> I haven't, I would say, I guess this is as neat as I can say it, I think. Mm-hmm. I haven't deconverted from Christianity, but I have heavily disaffiliated mm-hmm. from the Christianity that I was taught and the culture that got Donald Trump elected and mm. the culture that um, promotes and, and fosters white supremacy, mm. um, that system is rancid. And um, I think that as I'm studying psychology and religious trauma, I'm seeing there's always distinctions made in the literature between religion and spirituality. And as much as Hillsong always said, we're not a religion where this is a relationship with Jesus. It's a religion. It's a religion. When you organize together, when there's an entity and an institution that is creating rules and regulations and, you know, agendas, like that's, that's a religion. And the, the spirituality side of, of my personal experience now is very exploratory. It's very, you know, nonlinear. It's very, um, um, it's just, it's not in a box. I mean, I'm not worshiping trees, but you know, I, I have really enjoyed having grown up with categories and very strict dogma. I've really enjoyed having the autonomy to experience the divine, you know, where, when, and wherever that happens, Mm. um, without someone telling me how to do that. Um, I think Jesus is incredible. I think the Bible is powerful, but there's so much that, if I met someone on the street who said they were a Christian, that I would probably disagree with them about theologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that, I thought I said it was neat. That wasn't, that wasn't very neat. <laughs> I, I yeah. like it though. Um, it, it reminds me of um, something you said on Janice's podcast. Um, when, you know, I think she used to ask her guests um, <laughs> if they were Christians and yeah. uh, she doesn't do that anymore. Um, yeah. But I, I, I liked what you said there, and it, and it resonated with me. Um, this idea of um, not not trying to pigeonhole. If somebody says they're a Christian, I'm not going to say, right. "Well, that's not my kind of Christian." Because the other thing that then um, that what that brought to to my mind was, um, if we keep doing the no true Scotsman thing um, with <laughs> with people who that, how do we hold anyone accountable? Right? right, because we can we can easily just say. Oh, you know the 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 Trump supporters—they're not real Christians, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they claim That's such to be. Such an easy answer, right? Yeah. And they'll look at me and say, "I'm not a real Christian because I'm a social justice liberal right. woke culture warrior." Right. Like you right. know, whatever other labels they want to stick on me. Like right. we could all play this game. Right? You're not right. the real Christian. I am, and it's a little bit harder to come to terms with if we say we are. Maybe we all have to have yeah. these conversations together, even if they're really yeah. and, messy and difficult. And and where I where I was going with that was that the um, those the the people who identify as Christian and want want to fold themselves into that banner um, and 
those of us who don't feel comfortable with what they're doing try to distance ourselves by saying, well, they're not real Christians, but you know, we're the real Christians over here. Mm -hmm. Um, then those people are never held accountable by anyone and their actions can be written off as, you know, something else, but from the outside looking in, they are right to, to the non-Christians. Um, the, those people are Christians because they claim to be. So someone has to hold them accountable. Hmm. You know, I don't know. That's I went into the comments, comments section on the Hillsonga documentary, wherever it was being promoted. And I saw that the Christians were explaining that those Hillsong people were just (laughs) not real. They have, they have, you know, watery doctrine and, you know, so like, don't, don't worry. This is not a reflection on Christianity. This is just a a Hillsong thing. And I think, you know, I can't speak outside of white evangelicalism because that is beyond what I've been raised in and what I know very well, but I can speak from white evangelical Christianity and say mega church, no mega church doesn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. I see this pattern and these problems all over the place. Yeah. All over the place in more patriarchal churches, less patriarchal churches in, you know, some somebody was saying, "Oh, it's it's the real issues are patriarchy." And I'm like, those are not the only hierarchical issues that exist inside of white evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. You know, white supremacy exists. Uh, just even any sort of hierarchy. The fact that at Hillsong, the different levels you have to jump through to get anywhere up. Like yeah. that, like Nate, you talking last time about how cool it was to be able to say you met your own pastor and had the smallest <laughs> conversation with him is such a ladder to climb. It's such a level of hierarchy that, um, you know, th- th- that's problematic all by itself. And these exist on smaller scales in different places, but I just, yeah, I agree with you. I think distancing ourselves is unhelpful to challenging what's wrong and what's what we need to be able to talk openly about as problems, such as white supremacy and all the other stuff that, that goes with it. Yeah. There's such a tension between, and, and, you know, Nate, you wanted to talk about the tension between being a, a victim and a perpetrator. Yeah. By, by being a volunteer and a leader in mm-hmm. Hillsong, which I was. And it's it's so complex because there's the systemic component to my involvement. And like what you're talking about, Gail, the systemic component to this, the Christianity covers a lot of these, these isms and these problems. And then there's the individual component. As an individual, do I distance myself so that I can process and heal do i stay in the system to help change it you know which we i'm sure we all know people that 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 they they're in they're still there because they're you know they're they're being the change they're they're being the leader that they wanted or and that's a, a a tension we all have to live in as we look at the systems that we are a part of wes thank you again so much for uh for joining us this has been an amazing conversation um so uh, I guess what what are you up to these days? What are what are some things that you're working on? Do you have anything creative that you want to share, or are you just um, doing your work and and keeping your head down? I'm keeping my head down. Yeah, I don't have any plugs, um, though. I appreciate you asking. I'm going to be starting in private practice this summer and um, learning a lot about religious trauma. I'm going to be working with folks that are you know that don't have that foundation Mm. like you were talking about gail and i you know this is obviously a very personal process for me that i want to be um 
be a helper for others with. So um, yeah, but thank you for having me. It was really, really lovely talking to you both. That wraps up another episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't already have one, head over to our website, fullmutuality.com for a list of all the apps you can find us on. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners. So thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of support, one of the best things you can do for us is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I'm pretty sure five-star reviews get you an extra crown in heaven. Look, seriously, if you found this episode insightful, spread the word and share it with your friends. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Full Mutuality. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. <laughs>